Job chapter 25, a much shorter chapter than we're used to in Job. Just a few verses here. Here, for this is the word of the Lord. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, Dominion and fear are with God. He makes peace in his high heaven. Is there any number to his armies? Upon whom does his light not arise? How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Behold, even the moon is not bright, and the stars are not pure in his eyes. How much less man who is a maggot, and the son of man who is a worm. Thanks be to God for his holy word. We have come to the surprisingly brief and final word from Job's friends. It seems that they have run out of steam. Their long-winded speeches have now been reduced to six verses of gasping for air and grasping at straws. And notice that this is Bildad, the second speaker in the lineup, giving his third and final speech, while the third speaker, Zophar, will not even speak a third and final time. We can say that Job's so-called friends have been defeated. Yet Bildad seems anxious to say something in response to Job one last time just to put him in his place. This brief word is just evidence that they have run out of wisdom. In fact, Bildad completely avoids Job's challenge in the prior chapter to prove him wrong about how the righteous do suffer in this world and the wicked man prospers while he is alive. Bildad's response sounds almost like a tantrum. He is just being repetitive. He repeats some of the same ideas that have been spoken before by Eliphaz, and at times it seems that these same ideas were even accepted by Job himself. And it revolves around the question, how can a mortal man who is born of a woman be in the right before God? That is the ultimate question. The question of all questions, isn't it? Now, Bildad's conviction is similar to our own conviction. And this conviction was that all of mankind, but specifically Job, is to be humbled before God. And the best way to humble a man before God is to reveal the immensity of God versus the insignificance of man. And this is what Bildad does. He begins by setting forth the greatness and power of God, which he then compares to the insignificance and powerlessness of man. We will discover the many truths communicated in Bildad's faulty speech before we address what his speech is lacking when we consider all of Job's story in the history of redemption. But first, he sets forth the greatness and power of God. Here, Bildad responds to Job's confidence when Job said, Oh, that I knew where I might find God, that I might come even to his seat. Bildad responds, No, no, no. Do you think you can just approach God's throne in any which way you please? Do you know how great and powerful our God is? And how low and debased man is? You can't just 
come before Him whenever you please? Because our God is holy. And to come before Him, you must be cleared of all guilt and cleansed from all impurity. To come before our God is to draw near to Him. And it's true, as we draw near to Him, we draw near to His holiness. The closer we draw near to God, we ought to begin to look at ourselves in light of who God is. This is why Isaiah would say, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, that wasn't his conversion story, as some have suggested. This ought to be the ongoing experience of every believer's life as we grow in holiness up until we enter into glory. The more sanctified we become, the more we will recognize how unworthy we are to come before God. This is what it meant to John, to walk in the light. If we walk in the light and say we have no sin right now as believers... The truth is not in us. We don't truly understand who God is. How can any man dare to come before God? Now, Job was seeking a hearing from God to clear himself of the guilt uh, that his friends have falsely accused him of and to contend with God's supposed verdict against him. But to Bildad, the fact that man is mortal and that Job himself is suffering is evidence that he is not cleared of all guilt and cleansed from all impurity. You think he's going to hear you out, Job? You're just a man. You're powerless and unable to come before God. But the truth is, all men will have to stand before God one day. The question is, how will he stand? Will he stand righteous or wicked? And so the first truth that Bildad communicates is in regard to God's dominion over all things. When he speaks of dominion, he's speaking specifically of God's immense power. He has power over all things and all creatures to rule over them. So dominion speaks of God's strength and power to subdue all things to himself. It speaks of his authority to do whatever he wants with his creation. And it speaks of his ability to fulfill his will within creation. Because since he is all-powerful and wields ultimate authority over all creation, he is able to do whatever he wants with it. Question 7 of our Shorter Catechism asks, What are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are his eternal purpose. According to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. He is all-powerful and able to direct all of creation to their proper end, and that is for his own glory. Unlike man, and unlike Job in this case, who is too weak to direct much of anything at all. And this is one of the major differences between God and man. Because when God created man in his likeness, he gave him dominion over the earth and creatures therein. 
But the difference is that man's dominion was given to him. We do not possess that authority in and of ourselves. Uh, At the end of the day, we must answer to a higher authority. And so God's dominion calls for a response from his subjects, from his creatures. So this God who created all things and subdues all things underneath him is to be feared. It says dominion and fear are with him. This does not mean that God fears anything, but that God is to be feared. Every godly man fears the Lord. When we speak of fear, we often think of a feeling of anxiety and terror. But fear in this case is actually a mixed feeling of both dread and reverence. That is honor or respect. We are to stand in awe of who God is and serve and worship him with reverence, with awe. Many people use the word awesome today for things that are not so awesome, right? God is the truly awesome one. We are to stand in awe of who he is and there is an expected response of man and that response is that we submit to him. We are called to obey his laws and submit to his guiding hand of Providence, as Peter says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Also, another major difference between God's dominion and man's dominion is that man's dominion is limited. It is limited. And when man fell into sin and disobedience, that dominion became even more limited. But God's dominion is unlimited. Can you even imagine that? It is unlimited. God's dominion is universal, absolute, everlasting, across space and time. And it is unstoppable. Which is, of course, unlike the dominion of man. Nebuchadnezzar praises this God who holds all power and authority in Daniel chapter 4. He says this, For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Here Bildad says that he has dominion in the high heavens and everywhere else for that matter. In his high heaven he makes peace. Uh, Peace can mean that he makes everything to run smoothly. The sun and the moon shine when they are supposed to. The stars align in the right place and at the right time. Or it could also mean that he makes wars in the heavens cease. That is spiritual wars. Because is there any number to his armies? He is mighty and victorious in battle. And he is called the Lord of hosts. Why would you try to contend with this God? His army of angels cannot be numbered as you would number the stars. In fact, in Revelation, it gives us a picture of the myriads of angels that surround his throne to worship him. And his rule extends to all creation and touches more than the rays of the sun. 
There is no shadow or dark corner where the Lord is not present. Upon whom does his light not arise? Light here is speaking of his goodness as he is the creator and sustainer of all things. His light is omnipresent, that is everywhere present, so there is nowhere in his creation that his goodness cannot be seen. And so this leaves men without an excuse. It is baffling to think that the natural man today has the audacity to either deny this God or to think that he can challenge this God. The God who has limitless power and authority and has no boundary that he is forced to respect. Yet in our natural state, we rebel and exalt ourselves to the place of God. On our best day, we think we know better than God. There are some who teach that man can do anything he wants to. Just put your mind to it and you can do it. You can be like God. Right? I heard someone else say that in the Garden of Eden, I think. We know we can't control pretty much anything. This is why a lot of people have power trips. Because they finally realize they have no control over anything. Not even their thoughts at times. We're all little tyrants of our own little worlds. We, we think we can actually control things that we can't. And we oftentimes act as if God is to fear man rather than man fear God. This is what makes a tyrant. He believes that everyone is called to fear him and answer to him rather than to God. That's the description of a tyrant, a, a narcissist who is full of himself. And what Bildad makes clear here is true, but partly misapplied. Here, Bildad says that man ought to bow in reverence and awe of God rather than seek to be justified as Job was trying to do. So secondly, to contrast the greatness and power of God to the insignificance and powerlessness of man, Bildad repeats two rhetorical questions that have already been asked by both Eliphaz and Job. He says, How then can man be in the right before God? How can he who is born of woman be pure? Being born of a woman is to communicate weakness and frailty. In comparison to God, man is weak and impure because he is first a creature and second he is fallen. Whereas God is not a creature, he is the creator and he is holy and never changes, unlike man. So Bildad is telling Job, you should be bowing to God rather than seeking to be justified before God. Now this justification is not speaking uh, of the justification we find in the gospel. It's not just speaking of that justification. It is, uh, but there are other reasons behind why Job wanted to come before God. Here, there are two major reasons why Job wanted to come before God. The first reason was that he wanted to have a hearing before God in order to plead his case because he believed that God has misjudged him and that God was punishing him for no reason. He is challenging God and his goodness. He is accusing God of some kind of wrong. So Bildad's response is partly justified as Job is wrong in challenging God. But the second reason was that Job wanted to come before God to be declared innocent because his friends have falsely accused him. 
And for the second reason, Job would be justified and his friends would be wrong. Bildad is questioning Job. Why are you challenging God? It is all your fault and you know it. Why are you seeking his favor? It is too late for you, Job. That's basically what he's saying. He is saying that Job's desire to be right before God was arrogant and illogical. Job comes close to accepting this on two occasions, but on both he eventually drew his mind and thoughts to heaven, to a mediator, a redeemer, who would one day vindicate and justify him before his friends, or better in this case, his enemies. This mediator or redeemer is someone who would stand in the way of God's judgment in case he was guilty of some hidden fault. And this mediator is none other than God himself. But what Bildad is saying here, there is no such mediator for you, Job. He says, behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not pure in his eyes. There is no hope for a sinner. His creation is fallen and in the state of decay compared to God, who is never in the state of decay. If his creation is no longer pure in his eyes, how much less man who is a maggot and the son of man who is a worm. Now, when you compare creation, specifically man, to God, yes, we would all be considered dust or even the maggots and worms that lay in the dust. There's no question in that. But when we compare man to God's creation, which is what Bildad is doing here, contrast what he says with what David says in Psalm chapter 8. He says, when I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him. Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, the angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Bildad was saying the exact opposite. You're saying compared to creation, which has fallen, man is a maggot, a worm. So although there are many truths in Bildad's final speech, yet this was a repetitive grasping for straws before he and his two compadres are silenced. Some may argue, well, at least they were consistent. Yeah, but they were consistently wrong. And they were consistently legalists. While... Job persevered. And although he was inconsistent at many points, Job's faith and integrity would win the day. So the first problem with Bildad's final speech was that it was reverent, but irrelevant. It was reverent, but irrelevant. Because the reason behind what Bildad says here was to deny Job of God's grace. It was to deny Job of God's grace. He calls him a maggot and a worm, not just to say that man is generally insignificant compared to God, but it was to say that Job was not only powerless, but also hopeless. He could never be redeemed. There is no hope for a sinner. That means there is no hope for any of us. Now the Lord 
does call his own people insignificant, like in Isaiah 41, chapter 14. He says, Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. But it was not at all to say that he was going to leave them alone and hopeless, but that he would grant them hope. Because right after that, he says this, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Yes, without God, we would all be left in our own pile of garbage like maggots and worms. It is like when Peter said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. But he says this right after that. You've got to read it in context. So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. Okay. God never calls us a worm and leaves us there. He also reassures us that he is our help. He is the one who makes us who are insignificant, significant. So the only time he calls us maggots is to reveal our powerlessness, our hopelessness without him. He is the source of all of our power. We don't make ourselves of any significance. Bildad here offered him no grace. No grace. He misrepresented God. So Bildad's speech was a denial of God's grace and a denial of the heavenly mediator and redeemer whom Job had been pleading to. Because the question is, can mortal man born of a woman be in the right before God? Can he be made pure and stand justified before God? No, not on his own at least. But the ultimate answer to this ultimate question is actually yes but only through the one who has dominion over all things, only through the one who is able to make peace between God and man. And he is and can only be God himself, yet he was also man. And this one who is God himself took on flesh and became a man. God would give this man all power, authority, and ability to be our ruler. And his dominion has no limit. It is universal, absolute, everlasting, and unstoppable. Daniel speaks of this man in his night visions in Daniel 7. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Jesus confirms this when he said to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is, all authority in the universe, is what he was saying. And it was from that authority that Jesus promises to be with his people. And to one day give them authority. To judge the nations. Imagine that. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow one day. He is all powerful. Paul says that Jesus Christ Himself will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ upholds the universe by the word of his power. 
Listen how Paul describes Jesus' dominion. He says this, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Look at that. Where power, greatness, dominion meets weakness and insignificance at the cross. This man who is preeminent, which means he surpasses all others, he is the greatest man to ever live, was born of a virgin, a virgin who was to give birth to the seed of the woman who would crush the head of our enemy, Satan. And to do so, he was considered a worm by his own people. While Bildad here prefigures those who put Christ on the cross, in the famous crucifixion psalm which Jesus quotes from, Psalm 22, from when he was on the cross, David, who was a type of Christ, so when we read that psalm, we should read that with Christ in mind. Christ was saying it. Right? Even though he doesn't quote the whole thing, it was Christ who was saying this of himself. He says this, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. So, beloved, this morning, considering all this, I would have only two points of application for you. First, trust in his power. Trust in his power. His power and his attributes are on display all around us in the things he has made. His dominion is undeniable. Every microfiber and every atom are under his control. And if you think he has the power to create all things that we see out of nothing, who says he does not have the power to save you, to transform you, to create new life in you, or or to help you deal with your daily trials your daily temptations, or to forgive you of your daily sins. The all-powerful God is not distant from us. He condescends to us. He comes into our weakness with His power and He cares for us. We don't have power in ourselves. It's not all in our minds. It must come from outside of us. And He enters into our weakness. This was displayed when the eternal and all-powerful Son of God took on our weakness, when He took on flesh. He lived a life of serving His weak creatures and gave them new life by His death and resurrection. And what did the Lord say to Paul when a messenger from Satan was harassing him? He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul said this was to keep him from being conceited. 
So in order to trust in his power, we must first recognize our weakness. We must recognize that we are incapable in and of ourselves to do much of anything at all without his help and power. This is in regard to both natural as well as supernatural. We cannot take our next breath without his sustaining power. So also we cannot see the light of his glorious gospel in Christ Jesus without his redeeming power. We cannot live the Christian life and walk the narrow road of a disciple without his enlivening power. So it is foolish to trust in ourselves or in the human will, which is often what we do. Man without God is nothing but a maggot or worm crawling aimlessly in the dirt and mud of our own wickedness. When you think you are strong, know that you are truly weak. And when you are weak, rest in the power of the Almighty God so you can say with Paul, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So first, trust in his power. And secondly, trust in his providence. This is one of our greatest struggles as sinners. It is a struggle to accept and trust in where God has led you so far and what he has in store for your future, wherever you are. Every piece of creation was put in the right place by God for the good of his creatures, for the good of man. Just like every means of grace provided by God is for your good. The preaching of the word, sacraments, and prayer. These have been provided for the good of his elect, his people, who are his children. Born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In God's redemptive providence, he provided Jesus Christ as our surety. The one who fully paid our debt for our redemption. It was in God's providence that he led Jesus through his temptations in the wilderness to a life of weakness, to the cross where he died for us. So he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has provided for us and led us through our most difficult trials, knowing that at the end of our hardships there is great reward. As they say, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Because by God's divine providence, Jesus didn't remain in the grave. After his trials came resurrection morning when he was raised. And 40 days later, he ascended to sit on his throne to govern all things. As he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you think that your trials are any match to our Lord Jesus Christ? they are not is it too much for him to handle no it is too much for us to handle but not for him things may not be going well for you right now it may look grim and impossible to overcome but God transcends nature he transcends what we see and he overcomes all our foes nothing can happen in the world without God's knowledge Nothing can happen in the world outside of God's will. 
Nothing can exist in the world without God's care and power. And at the end of it all, we will look back and say with the psalmist, David, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Amen.